I have things here, and we'll get to that in just a second, but I feel compelled to say something. Um, we've been in the thick of James, and we're, kind of, we're on the tail end of it. And some of these lessons, raise your hand if you think some of these lessons have been hard lessons. Okay, I've been hearing from you. But that's not bad, actually, because uh, the things that I've been hearing is that God, he's using this stuff. So what I want to remind us before we jump back into this today is simply this. And this is just, you know, not necessarily a revolutionary thought, but something that God reminded me of this morning um, in my study. It's just that, you know what? He loves you. He loves me. And when we get to tough passages like this, I think it's, it's quite easy for us to become discouraged by these things or say, well, this is, I, this is a goal I can't meet. I'm never going to be this person. And so what God reminded me of today, and in turn I'm reminding you of, is that he loves us. And when he gives us things like this, when James, the people that James is speaking to, he loves these people. Right? If you're a parent and you come to your kid and you're like, hey, I need you to do this or you've got to correct this. We correct our kids because we love them. Uh, we don't want them to be hooligans out there running wild in the world without Sunday school teachers or whatever. Right? We, we want our kids to behave the way they're supposed to. Because we want them to respect and love other people. And so that's really what James's point in all of this is. is, Listen, guys, you need to know God loves you. And because he loves you and he's a good father, he has expectations. He has things that he wants to see in your life to make you more like him and more like his son. And so that's kind of where we're at. So today, if all goes well, we're going to finish. We're going to get up to the point of uh, James chapter 5, verse 11. And then next weekend... I'm going to invite you guys to come back because we're going to actually do something special to hopefully wrap up the book of James. Um, it's really one of my favorite things that we do all year, and it's uh, a moment where you guys have the opportunity to share what you're thankful for and the blessings that God has sort of sprinkled throughout your life this whole year. And, but we're going to try something different with it. We've never really done this before, and it's going to be woven into wrapping up the book of James and maybe hitting some of the highlights of that. So uh, it'll be a grand experiment. And if you like experiments or weirdness, then next weekend's your weekend. Bring your friends and family. It'll be fun. So, um, so here we are. James is challenging us. He challenged us last weekend anyway, and really throughout this book, to be people full of godly wisdom. And he made this clear through a bunch of different things, but his main point was that everything that we say... And everything that we do comes from one source, right? And that's from our hearts. The character of what we believe in our hearts is the thing that shapes everything outward that anyone sees in our lives. And uh, a great way, I'll just put these two things here for you to remember from last week. But he talked about the conflict raging in our hearts and how that will spill out into our lives. And so if we're people that are conflicted about... uh, maybe selfishness versus what God wants or any of those kinds of things, uh, that's going to spill out and affect all the areas of our lives. And then the second part of that is that the true wisdom, godly wisdom, comes from unconditional surrender to the king. If we want to be godly, wise people, we have to surrender our complete, our entire lives to him. And so uh, another thing we talked about was uh, Micah 6.8 and that verse and the idea that if we're going to be people that are humble, that are merciful, that are just, or people that live righteous lives according to God's standards, if we're going to love God and love other people, 
right? Because that's what we're called to do. We want to love God with everything, with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we want to love our neighbor, our friends, the people that surround us better than we love ourselves, really. Not just as good as we love ourselves, but better because sometimes we don't love ourselves that much, right? We want to love God, love others. If we want to do that, the key to living that way, to live this whole thing out, is to have humble hearts. Being people that don't allow things like pride or arrogance to take root in our lives. And one thing I want to say on this, it's worth noting as we explore this because we're going to talk more about it. um, That when we try to live those things out, when we try to live out um, justice and mercy without that first component, that critical component of humility, uh, the results usually are terrible. Uh, They're inauthentic. They often cause more harm than good. And sometimes they can even take the form of judgment. And so it actually has the opposite effect on lives than it's intended to as far as God's standpoint is concerned. So, again, our hearts are the key to everything that shows in our lives. And so, again, if you're a note-taker this week, you're going to go nuts, okay? There's a lot of stuff. I'm totally happy to send these to you. Just send me an email this week, and and I'd be glad to do that. So the hearts are the key. And this week, James continues in this discussion. He wants to help all of his hearers, and so that includes all of us, to identify areas of arrogance that need to be addressed. And so there's two main ones he starts with. Verses 13 through 14 uh, in chapter 4 are all about arrogance and knowledge. And then verses 15 through 16 are about arrogance and attitude. Aren't you excited? Woo! Right? We should pray. God, thank you. Um, We just pray that you would shape our hearts today. That you would make us into the men and the women that you want us to be. I thank you for all the good work in that regard that you've already done. Not just uh, today through worship and uh, through sharing times of fellowship together. But all that you've done, uh, even in your faithfulness uh, to this body, God, over uh, the past year. And so today we thank you and we celebrate you. and, And we invite you to make us into who you want us to be. We love you and we thank you that you love us. It's in your name. Amen. So here he is, James chapter 4, starting with verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow... Wait, where am I at? Here we go. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is a sin. So James kicks this whole thing off, right? Because he spent like four chapters, at least the way that we look at it, talking about all of this super important stuff. And it was all connected. It was all important. And so he knows that the people, as they're hearing this, that they're all caught up in thinking about this. Just like you guys are probably still thinking about all the weirdness comments. You haven't even heard a word we've said, right? We do that. Our minds get distracted way back here. And so James uses this thing. He's like, come now, which basically means listen up or attention because he wants to bring everybody back to what he's about to say. He's like, this is important and it has everything to do with what you've just heard. He's continuing these thoughts on humility and he points out a dangerous example of arrogance, which is assuming a role that's reserved for God. By relying on our own strength and our own skills for provision. Let me just say we're completely unqualified in that regard. Uh, And that's what he's saying here too. Uh, We can't control events. We like to think we can, but we can't. We don't know the future. So we can't uh, really justify having that type of attitude about either of those things. 
And it's not just our plans, folks, that he addresses here. It's not just our plans that won't stand unless God permits. But we only stand as God permits. In other words, let's just skip the talking about the plans and talk about the fact that we only draw our next breath because God permits that next breath to be drawn. That whatever we do, whatever function we have in this life, all of that is only because God has decided that that next thing is going to happen. So we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves when we start thinking about plans sometimes. And this is precisely the point that Jesus makes in a parable, and it's found in Luke 12. Here's what he says. And then Jesus told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say, yeah, there we go. And I will say to my soul, which is funny, he's talking to his soul. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many, many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, we've probably heard this parable taught a lot, and probably in a lot of different ways, and usually it's in a function of giving, like whether it's offering and those kinds of things. And I, I think it's certainly important to look at it that way. That's important, but I think there's something uh, in the structure here that we need to talk about in the context of James. So I was trying to think of what a real-world example might be of this. And the one that actually someone helped me think of is uh, the Y2K thing. How many of you guys remember Y2K? What's really funny is I went online to research that because I wanted to make sure I remembered everything correctly. And one of the things that I read online is that there's tons and tons of people that weren't alive then. They don't even know what it is or what it was or what it meant, which is crazy to me because it was such a real thing uh, for us at that time. So there are many people that don't know what that is. So just in case you're one of them, I want to show you a very quick video that I found just to give you a refresher. There still exists a general state of either denial, complacency, or even apathy about both the reality and the potential effects of Y2K. By the end of the 90s, many of us were happy slaves to our computers. But our new masters had a trick they had forgotten to tell us about. The basic idea on Y2K was that for convenience, all these computer programs, when it came to do dates, you only needed two numbers. Why use four numbers when you only need two? And then they recognized what date is a computer going to think it is when we get to 2000. One simple date change for man, one major screw up for computer. At the stroke of midnight, January 1st, 2000, elevators may stop, heat may vanish. Credit cards and ATMs may cease to function. Airplanes and trains may come to a halt. People were terrified the world was going to end. This is not one of the summer movies where you can close your eyes during the scary parts. With nearly everything in our economy run by computers, the prospect of a digital meltdown is too huge to contemplate. I was worried because the whole computer game was new to us, and I was a little ignorant. We didn't know what we didn't know. And many thought what we didn't know was going to hurt us. I've got a, a revolver right now, but I wanted something, something more. 
That was a dragon's breath shell. It can shoot a 4,000-degree flame 300 feet. It's also the most popular ammunition among Y2K customers at KGS Guns and Ammo. There was a fear. Everything's in the Internet. Everything's in computers. And we're going to lose it all. And Jesus is coming back. With pre-millennium tensions growing, the president appoints a crisis management expert to prevent a Y2K meltdown. Eight to ten percent of the population were fairly confident that this was going to be uh, an apocalypse. The president called me one night and said, here's an office and an assistant and don't let the world stop. <laughs> don't let the world blow up, okay? That's your job. That, that's a pretty tough job. So uh, I have the uh, news authority of all time here, the Weekly World News, up on the screen for you. Um, I, if I ever read this, it's only for humor purposes. But I think this particular page that I found, this front page, actually describes the way people were feeling then. All banks will fail. Food supplies will be depleted. Electricity will be cut off. The stock market will crash. Vehicles using computer chips will stop dead. Telephones will cease to function, which was probably what most people were really worried about. And the domino effect will cause a worldwide depression. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, yeah, it was me. All because we use two digits for dates instead of four. Unless you use an Apple computer and you didn't have that problem. Woo! Threw some shade there. Anyway, so um, that's not my point at all. You had this thing that was happening where this paranoia set in, especially among Christians, folks. I'm going to call our own crowd out on this one. There was this paranoia that set in where panic and fear, which we're not supposed to be a part of, right? According to Scripture, gripped people. People started hoarding supplies, stocking up guns. Well, I own a revolver, but I, I just want something a little more. You heard her, right? And then there were tons of companies that used that fear to exploit people and make a tidy profit. And many people were so focused on what might happen in the future that they abandoned their present responsibilities. They leveraged everything in fear of what tomorrow might bring. Churches held preparedness seminars. People that I know cashed out 401ks and retirements, took out loans, maxed out credit cards, and leveraged everything to invest in building and stocking bunkers to survive the coming crisis. Some literally built huge storehouses, which is what Jesus talks about in the scripture. And all of it was wasted. The only lasting things were the dehydrated meats that they're still eating and the debt that they're still paying off 17, 18 years later. So to be clear, I want to be very clear about this. There's nothing wrong, folks, with being prepared. I think it's wise. I think Scripture does encourage us to be prepared. That's a part of actually what James is talking about, but it may have a little different angle than we've come to expect. But I believe what matters most to God is our faithfulness to him in this life. This is the only one we've got, okay? It's the only one that he's given us the ability to impact and love and share his love with other people. And, and he wants us to do something with that. The future will sort itself out. I promise. It always does. And we have zero control over that anyway, as we said earlier. So Jesus, James, the Apostle Paul, they all taught the same thing in this regard, that our security, folks, is only found in the Lord. 
It's only found in the Lord. But here's what's cool. All three of them actually draw from this passage, and it's found in Jeremiah. And it helps us unlock the problem with planning in this way. It's Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And then I've given you a couple of other scriptures that you can look at on your own time in that regard. So Jeremiah tips us off to something. He points out something that I think is important. It's this sort of planning that he points out is a problem with God. When people put their security and trust in these three things instead of him, in wisdom, like in their own wisdom, in their might or their power, and in their riches. And we see it all the time. These things may provide for our immediate needs. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't have these things. I want to be clear about that too. They may provide for our immediate needs, but they won't last for the long haul. All of these things are going to burn, every one of them. And so James stands on the authority of Scripture as a whole to say, listen, trust in anything but God is always, always, no exceptions, always misplaced. So he's like, listen, if you want to brag about something, here you go. He pulls it from Psalms 34, verses 2 and 3. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. That's a purpose statement right there. That's why we were created, folks. To magnify the Lord and exalt his name together. And so if we're going to brag about something, he's like, listen, you can brag about this all day. Because this is what you were made to do and it will last. Again, there's nothing wrong with making plans. I think it's important. I think stewardship and all of the things that come with that are very important. They're part of who God wants us to be. They're part of his character. God gave us brains for a reason, okay? So that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we have to be careful not to get caught up in that stuff. Scripture clearly demonstrates a pattern of responsibility when it comes to using our time and our resources wisely. But here's the point. Our trust in the Lord must be at the center of all of our plans. It has to be the cornerstone of everything for our lives. And sometimes trust in the Lord may actually cause you to make choices and do things that maybe are antithetical to self-preservation, right? Ask any of the dudes in the New Testament for the most part, and they will tell you the same. Our next breath, guys, only comes when the Lord wills it. And our boasting in the Lord only It's really the only boasting that we have. And James actually is pretty hardcore in verse 16. He says everything else is evil, basically. Boasting in anything else other than the Lord is evil. And when he says evil, I think he means evil. So there you go. Um, Verse 17 in chapter 4, he continues. So whoever knows the right thing to do. So after he said all of this, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And I'm only pointing this out because I want us to understand a concept here. Scripture seems to suggest that sins of omission, or in other words, when we know better and we don't follow, we don't heed God's words, are more serious than sins resulting from just not knowing or being uninformed. And so uh, James is saying, listen, guys, now you know better. And so 
Don't be people that announce plans as if you could control all the circumstances. Or don't be people who fail to acknowledge that God is in charge and that every one of our plans depend on his will. That's important for us. It's, it's a super huge concept that we need to get around. And so it's with all this stuff in mind that James continues. Arrogance in knowledge or attitude often leads to something. It leads to dependence on ourself and on materialism. And that's what he talks about next. So he says, it's James chapter five. Wait, hey, we made it to chapter five. Woo! I feel like there should be some kind of game show bonus round or like a thing should go off. I don't know. Anyway, um, so James says here, chapter five, verse one. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So what's going on here? What's he talking about? There's actually some disagreement among scholars. Imagine that, right? There's some disagreement among scholars about who James is addressing here. And so I just want to point this out very, very briefly. We've been reading this letter in the context of the Jewish people that he was writing to. He announces them at the very beginning of it, that they were spread out all over the region and really all over the world. But we also know that they had uh, Gentile believers who were worshiping with them. And so really it was for that total audience that he was writing to. But because James addresses this group differently, he doesn't call them brothers like he has uh, previously. Scholars believe, or they argue, that maybe this was addressed to non-believers outside of the community. From my perspective, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Because why would you be writing to somebody that's never going to hear what you're saying, right? That's what I think. Um, David Stern agrees with me. He's a Messianic author, and uh, he's the guy that's responsible for the complete Jewish Bible and the Jewish New Testament commentary, but he thinks that this should be understood as being addressed to believers, that whether it was people within their community or whether it was people that were connected to the community, we, would, we don't know. But regardless of all of that stuff, those are just bonus, bonus tidbits for you there. Regardless of all that stuff, this message is intended for all who could hear it because we can all learn something from this, and that includes you and I. In a nutshell, in that day and time, People didn't have things like bank accounts necessarily. And especially in a situation where you have all of these believers who were displaced from their homes. They didn't have connections in their community like they did back at home. They didn't have these networks of friends necessarily. And so all of these people were basically just scraping by is what he's trying to say. And so what was happening in this context, the guys that he's writing to, he's not mad because they're rich. He's not mad because they have things. That's not the point at all. His deal is this. Like, listen, guys, you're withholding money from these people that have worked for you. It was sort of a a week to week, a paycheck to paycheck kind of thing. And some of us can relate to that, right? These folks were paycheck to paycheck. They depended on what they had. And if they didn't get the money, it meant they were not eating. Okay, they were not going to eat that day. And he's like, you've got all these rich guys. And they owe all of these people money, but they're withholding it so that they can do all of these things to live this luxurious and self-indulgent lifestyle. So it wasn't even that they were withholding this money for some good reason other than just 
to enjoy pleasure and life. That's what was happening here. And so James is like, listen, guys, this is wrong. And James is not alone in saying this. This actually goes all the way back to the very beginning. This is in violation of the Torah. This is exploitation at the highest degree. You can read about it in Leviticus 19. But James is like, guys, this is not right. You've got all these people that you're oppressing, all these people that are suffering because you're selfish and you're indulging yourself in your riches. This is extremely oppressive. And here's the deal that I want you to understand. God cares about people. That's why he wrote that way back then. And guess what? He's always cared about people. One of the things that happens a lot, I think, when we look out at the world and people are, are critical of what we believe in our faith, one of the things that they'll often pull out of their hat is, well, God doesn't really care about people. Look at all the terrible things that he did to people in the Old Testament. Read it again. Look at all the terrible things that people did to people in the Old Testament. Look at all the times that God rose people up to defend people that needed to be defended in the Old Testament. Look at all the times that people were oppressed and God said things and wrote things and commanded things in order to make that stop. We serve a God that loves, a God that loves people, and he will go to any lengths to protect the innocent and and, uh, those that are being oppressed. And so this is why James is saying all this, because obviously something was going down here. He also describes this wealth as rotting and clothing becoming moth-eaten. Both of those things were a commodity back then. Like I said, they didn't have bank cards or any of that stuff. Commodities to them, clothing actually was something that they could barter. It had worth then. So that's why you see in Scripture all these times people giving clothing to someone. It was considered to be money. It was like money. Uh, uh, Resources like grain, all of that stuff. They didn't have to worry about Y2K. They didn't have to worry about the stock market crashing. What they had to worry about was uh, the progress of natural causes destroying their investments, if you think about it. Moths eating their clothes, bugs and things getting into the grain, a terrible harvest, all that stuff. Those were real threats to them. And so James is saying, listen, rich people, your obsession with the accumulation of wealth, even at the expense of those you've oppressed, condemns you. It actually cries out against you. And so here's what I would say. This is how it would apply to our lives. Because we see this same type of oppression happening in our world today. All over our world. And let me just say this, that people that do that, there's a day is going to come when their bill is going to come due. And it's not going to have anything to do with riches or wealth in this world. It's going to have everything to do with a a righteous judge and king coming and saying, Hey, listen, you were not someone that loved people the way that God commanded you to love people. It's going to be a big deal. So James turns his attention now to believers, now that he's called out these folks. And it's not hard to imagine that he may have shared all that stuff, right, just to give some hope. All these people that may have been in their community that were being oppressed, maybe they came in with a lack of hope. Some of the stuff that he's calling out, they're getting really bummed about it, right? It's like, listen, guys, you have to have hope because you serve a God not only that loves you, but he sees what's happening. And in the end, he's not going to stand for it. He knows. He hears your cries, and he will have his justice. And so here's how James encourages us with the way forward. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You have no money. Your family's not going to eat next week. Just be patient. How many like that advice? (laughs) Wait, what? 
Be patient? Are you serious? What a crazy, maybe somewhat incredible command to give after the whole chunk that he just talked about all these offenses. I would expect maybe be outraged or be upset or be complaining or be uprising to overthrow these terrible people. Any of those things, in my opinion, I'm like, okay, that's what I would expect. But one thing I can say about James is he's consistent in his teaching. Let's continue. So be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So what in the world is going on here? After dealing with these heart matters, right, of pride, oppression, suffering, James's encouragement is for each of us to have this patient attitude and leave that judgment to God, which is easier than said than done. Like, leave the judgment to God, and you just persevere in righteousness. Be patient. Wow, that's it. Okay. Lesson done. Thanks, James. That's great. But here's what's cool about James. He's all about discipleship. So he doesn't just leave it there. He actually gives us some examples here. And I'm going to look at those with you. We'll just work through these real quick. Three examples of patience that James challenges us to emulate. The first one that he names is the farmer. So, I hear that farming's hard work. I'm not actually a farmer. But I've messed around in dirt enough to know that even just messing around in dirt is hard work. So I couldn't imagine how hard it would be to be a farmer, especially back then, the people that he was speaking to, right? They didn't have all of these glorious tractors and things. So farming's hard work, and here's the thing. There's very little to show for that work at first, right? I mean, you have to plant, and then there's just a whole lot of taking care of Dirt, and sometimes plants when they start to come up, and then a whole lot of waiting. Farmers know how to be patient, but on a deeper level, James gives us something else here. He makes this reference to these early and late rains. In Israel, there's this uh, climate pattern, and basically what happens is that the bulk of the rainfall that happens in Israel comes between November and March. But what James does is he calls out something else. There's these rare occasions that they have what I personally call bonus rains. And these happen in October and April, the month before and the month after that season. When these things happen, it's a big deal. Those are the years that the crops are usually amazing. And so James is saying, listen, have this patience to persevere, not just through this normal cycle of stuff, but there's blessings on the other side of this patience when you wait. When you leave judgment to God. The next thing that he mentions are prophets, the prophets, uh, the ones who remain steadfast under persecution. Again, sometimes with very little evidence that their ministries were fruitful at all. If you go through and you read through some of the stories of the prophets, 
man, I don't know if I could have stuck with it. A great example of that, we just read a passage from his writing. It's the prophet Jeremiah. If we measure Jeremiah in human standards, he really wasn't much of a success if you're looking at it from that point of view. In fact, he might even be considered a failure. He failed to convince his contemporaries not to rebel against Babylon for starters, and he actually failed to save Jerusalem from destruction, which were kind of the two things that he was supposed to do. So, that's interesting. But if we look at his life and his teachings more carefully, with history on our side, we learn a few more things, that actually his ministry was quite fruitful. We learn that he lived at the most critical moment of his people's long history to that point. They were about to disappear from the stage of history forever. They were about to be gone. But because of Jeremiah, they're preserved. Jeremiah plays a central role not only in the survival of the Jewish people, but he's also a key figure in not only their ethical development, but in ethical development worldwide. Like a lot of the things that we look to now, the standards of ethical development, uh, we can trace back their roots to Jeremiah and his ministry and his writings. So there's another one. There's an example of patience. And then the third one, of course, is Job. One time when I was going through something really hard, I had a friend that said, hey, you know what I do whenever I'm going through something hard? I just read the book of Job. I was like, okay, I'll try that. And then I did. I'm like, why did I do this? Now I can't whine. Now I can't complain about my problems. If you don't know the story of Job, I'm going to encourage you to read it on your own. But basically, here's the, the in a nutshell version. Job had everything. His life was awesome. He was blessed. He was known worldwide as the guy. God's guy, God's man. The enemy comes to God and he's like, well, the only reason Job loves you is because you give him everything. Why don't you let me play around for a while, right? So God says, all right, let's just see how this goes. It doesn't go well for Job. He basically loses everything, his family. And, and it's just like when you read it, it's disaster after disaster. It's like a perfect story because as one person's running in to tell him everything terrible that happened, Scripture's very clear that they're not even finishing telling him the terrible thing before the next person runs in to interrupt saying, Something even more terrible has happened, Job! But yet... Through all of that, Job is this example of someone who remains steadfast despite his questions because he's got questions and the help of his friends. And if you read the story, you know what I'm talking about. So in the end of the story, Job is not only restored, but he's blessed like way more than he was before. And he leaves the whole thing with not only more blessings, but actually a more accurate perspective on God and his sovereignty. So he learns something through this whole process. Here's the point. Our faithfulness over the long haul, folks, is important to God. That's not an Old Testament thing. That's an all-time thing. Our faithfulness over the long haul is important to God. If you were here for the very beginning of James, way back in chapter 1, verse 4, he encouraged us to do this. And let steadfastness or faithfulness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So if James were here today, and let's say he was emulating his bro, Jesus, right? Because we know much of his writing refers back to the things that his brother said. 
If he were here today and he were emulating Jesus, he might say it this way. You've heard it said that practice makes perfect. But I tell you, patience makes perfect. God is just, folks. He hears and he sees. James would tell them this too. Listen, your father above hears and he sees everything. Nothing escapes his view. And all of your patience will be rewarded. So with that in mind, get ready. In a way, James is warning us too. He's like, listen, the kingdom is at hand. The day of the Lord is imminent. And I know that we're years away maybe from when he was saying that. But where's that expectation that any day, in a blink of an eye, Jesus is back on the scene. Where's that expectation? Have we lost that? So James is warning us, the kingdom is at hand. The day of the Lord is imminent. And in the midst of all of this, he serves up a really curious statement. So, with that in mind, do not crumble against each other, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. What? Paul says the same thing in Philippians 2. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Does that seem weird to anyone else in light of everything that he's just said? He's, this is a weird chapter to me, like some of the things that he throws out there. So after warnings against arrogance, he calls out rich oppressors, and then he encourages the people to be patient. And then basically he repeats himself because he's already said this earlier. Don't complain about each other. What's the deal with that? Right? Sometimes I read things like this from James or from Paul or from others in Scripture. I'm like, were you guys serious? Like, really? I mean, I know that you dudes must have spent a lot of time by yourselves to be able to say this kind of stuff. But if there's one thing that we know about Scripture, it's that anytime the author repeats himself, which James is doing here, it must be very, very important, right? It must be important or he wouldn't have said it twice. So what's he trying to tell us? Obviously, this was an issue in the early church. Whatever was going on among these people, uh, part of it had to do with grumbling and complaining and judgment. But why is it important enough to repeat it again? Here's why. Because complaining is like a cancer that eats away at you. And it eats away at your life. Complaining denies the power, provision, and sovereignty of God in our lives. Well, how do you figure that, Pastor Bill? It takes all of these daily opportunities that we have to practice blessing, to be thankful, which is something that we can learn a lot from Jewish tradition from. And it basically says, I know better than God does. And so I'm going to point it all out to him. (laughs) I'm going to point out all the problems and all the things that I see wrong. I'm going to name them. But all that complaining does, folks, is it opens the door for the enemy. And that's what James is saying. That's what Paul's saying as they write to these communities. And that's what they want us to hear today, too. It just opens the door for the enemy. Complaining doesn't solve problems. It just creates a breeding ground for greater problems. 
And James knows this, and he knows that this is especially true when we complain to other people, which is part of what he's talking about here. We take this discontentment and this cancer and we spread it to someone else. Or at the very least, and some of you can relate to this, you may not repeat the complaining, but you then carry the burden of the problem that this other person has. How many of you are pleasers in this room? Raise your hand. Go on. Be proud about it. It's okay. God made you. That's what happens. So you may not be unhappy. You may not be dissatisfied, but somebody just unloaded all of their stuff on your skid, and now you get to drag it around. This is an area that God has been hammering me with lately. How easily that I slip into a complaint about really the dumbest things and sometimes things that are even blessings. And so uh, here's our transparency time for today. Right? Part of my responsibility at home, part of my gig there, is to put our kids to bed. That's been part of what I do since we had kids. And so I'm also uh, on night call if there's any type of emergency or bad dream or whatever it is. I'm the guy that gets tagged to go take care of that. And I've been you know, doing this since they were really little, and so now I have uh, kids that are actually adults now, and it's really freaking me out thinking about that, so I'm just going to go back to this. I'm the on-call parent at night, and more often than not, with every one of our kids, with the exception of Isabel, because she put herself to bed when she was a kid, which was awesome. It's like, it's nine, I'm going to bed, good night, daddy. Seriously. But the, all three of the other kids, they don't want to sleep, even now. And they would try to stretch out bedtime. And before long, it became not just, I need you to read me a story or I need to do this. It became like this list of things that we have to do. Oh, it's like, wow, your tests in this town are so hard. I didn't know I had to juggle to get you to go to bed, right? But my daughter, Olivia, and she's not in the room today. She's actually with Kidlets. She's the champion of this. And so it becomes, oh, I need you to do this, or I need a drink. I need you to get me a water. Oh, I need you to straighten out the covers. You know, what's our reasonable requests? I just want to read one more page. Can I read one more page? Can we watch something? It goes on and on and on and on. And so before, this is what's happened, okay? Before we even get to the point of where it's bedtime, I'm starting to not, I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm already saying to myself, I have so much stuff to do. I don't even want to do this. Like, why can't you just put yourself to bed? I mean, come on. You're in middle school now, really. And so then we get into it, and it's every little thing. I'm just like, really, do we have to do that today? Really, do you need water? Is that important? You'll be fine. You've already got the fan on. Why do you want covers? And I get in this mode where I'm complaining. Like, and and I, I don't even know that I'm doing it sometimes. It's just what's coming out of me. But here's the deal. That kid's a blessing. Not just my kid. Your kids are blessings too. Kids are a gift from the Father above. And it's crazy that he would trust me of all people to raise one, much less four of them. So my conviction is that I'm lucky to have those kids. 
So many people want kids and they don't have kids. And here I am blessed with four that are healthy and happy. And really, she likes the fact that I'm the one that's putting her to bed. She wants to spend time with me in that regard. I could even look at it as this is a blessing that she wants to extend this dad time as long as possible before she goes to sleep because she doesn't want to miss out on anything. I'm blessed that she would even want me to be the last weird-looking face that she sees at night. Right? That's just one example. But there's so many things in our lives, folks, whether you're a parent here or not, that you have to be thankful for, that you are blessed with, things that can be noticed and things that can be praised. Things that we can say, God, thank you for that. Every moment is an opportunity, guys, that we can choose to worship God with our lives or not. And so thankfulness is a part of that. So instead of complaining, I want to choose to respond to the Lord each day by developing an attitude of gratitude. And listen, I know that's a complete buzzword, but this God had cornered the market on this long before Oprah ever said a word about it, okay? An attitude of gratitude is a biblical thing. I don't just want to throw out an occasional expression of thanks. I don't just want to be the guy that says, well, Lord willing, I'm gonna, right? I want to be... A man, I want to be someone that cultivates a continual lifestyle of thanksgiving. Like every time that someone sees me, every time that someone sees one of you guys, like one thing I know about that man or that woman is they are blessed and they are thankful for it. We talked about farming, but cultivation, I chose that word purposefully because it's hard work. It requires working the hard soil to prepare it to receive seeds and then taking care of those seeds until they grow into maturity. So if I want to grow into this person who's developed this attitude of gratitude, then it's going to take some hard work. Especially if if I got into this habit of not being that. It's going to take some overcoming, right? So how do I do it? Well, we have to make it a priority first. We have to say, you know what, this is something I've identified in my life that God doesn't want there, and I want to be done with it. We have to ask for help. We have to ask for forgiveness. We have to make it a priority to notice the good things and point those out to God. Thanking God for this. Go home and watch Fiddler on the Roof, man. You'll learn a lot about blessings. Rabbi, is there even a blessing for a sewing machine? There is. But the other part of it is sharing that gratitude with others. One of the things in our marriage class the other night we talked about was the idea of saying thank you. And we kind of laughed a little bit about it then because it was more focused on the wives thanking their husbands for doing basically things that are their jobs. But how that builds up, there's a part of the husband that responds to that and it builds them up and it solidifies that relationship. You know, so we did, we giggled about it. But then as I got away from it, I started thinking about it. It's like, you know what? How many places do you go now where people never say thank you? For just regular stuff like holding the door open for someone or giving somebody a drink. It's like it's an art that's just kind of lost in this world now. I believe it's something that God wants us to do. So that's the way that we share with it. We thank people for what they do, for what they mean to us. You can never thank someone enough. Because I think ultimately we have to get in that habit. And we have to find ways to practice it if we're going to get in that habit. We can notice every single thing that God's doing in our lives day to day and 
celebrate that stuff. I think it's awesome. And so, again, James's warning is, listen, guys, the only righteous judge, the only one that's qualified to judge is on his way. And it ain't Santa Claus coming to town, right? The only righteous judge is on his way. His return is imminent. How do we want him to find us? Grumbling and complaining? Real quick, an example of this. When uh, some of you kids will be able to relate to this, and parents for that matter. Uh, When I was little, and it was just my sister, Brandy, and I at home, my parents would go do stuff like on a Saturday. Well, we're going we're gonna to leave at noon and we'll be back around 4. And so they would give us often a list of chores, right, stuff that they wanted us to do. Like, I need you to take care of all this stuff and, uh, and you know, before we get back. And how many of you know what happened? We'd start jacking around. We probably would get in some type of a fight with each other. Sometimes it got physical, but I can still take her. She's my little sister. That's crazy. Anyway, um, we'd be jacking around, and we'd lose track of time. We'd be fighting, and then all of a sudden, we'd have this moment where we go, Mom and Dad are coming home, and we've not done anything on this list. And then what happens? Windows. Right? Like trying to get it all done. Sometimes the cue was hearing the car pull into the driveway. (laughs) Right? And admittedly, this still happens sometimes when Valerie leaves. (laughs) To be honest. Yeah. Oh, the women's retreat's three days. We'll be fine. No, we have to put this house back together in an hour, guys. Come on! So here's the point of what I'm saying with all that. James is basically saying, listen, I'm giving this commandment. God's on his way. Don't grumble and complain. Right after he talked about finding our provision in God, he wants us to make sure that we don't fall into a trap, a trap of uh, depending on material things and and jealousy and being caught up in complaining because it usually has its roots in the three things I mentioned, in wisdom, uh, in our own power, and in money or riches. Don't let that stuff cause you to grumble or complain or strive against each other. It could be that these oppressed people or maybe even not oppressed people looked at the rich people and were like, man, I wish I had that. Maybe this whole uh, Messiah, Jesus thing isn't really what it should be. Maybe I need to chase that. James is like, listen, guys, he's on his way. He's coming back. Don't let him catch you with the house not clean. But the other thing we need to remember is wisdom and power and riches are the three biggest competitors for our heart's affection as far as God's concerned. Because mankind tends to chase one or all of those things. So he's saying, listen, keep your hearts focused on what lies ahead, the thing you can trust, the thing that means something eternally. God sees you. He's compassionate. He loves you. He's merciful. And his return is imminent. Patience makes perfect. Be patient. Let him perfect you in that. God wants us to be patient and steadfast and merciful. That's 
So basically his character traits. He just wants to see them in us. Focused on him and his purposes for our lives. And when we do that, we are allowing him to do his work of perfection in us. Would you guys bow your hearts with me? God, we love you and... I'm thankful that you love us and that even when you challenge us, you, you hand us hope and you hand us encouragement and you're just good. You're a good, good father and we don't tell you enough. And so I pray uh, for all the folks that are here today, um, just that you would cultivate this attitude of gratitude, that uh, blessing and thankfulness and a recognition of what you've done and what you're doing would be the things that rise from our hearts. For those of us that uh, have fallen into negativity, God, or pursuing things uh, in this life uh, that aren't as important to you as our faithfulness, I pray that you would reorient our priorities, God. I pray for those of us that fall into these patterns of complaint or being unthankful, that you would flip that upside down as we talked about today, at the very beginning, that You would turn all of that over, God, so that we could see the blessings that you've handed us, that we could see all of the ways that we should be thankful. And God, I just pray for those that, as we enter this week of Thanksgiving, I pray that it would be uh, a time of Thanksgiving like never before as we embrace these things. And I also pray that you be with all who are traveling, uh, that you keep them safe, and that uh, you just use us as a light Everywhere that we go, whether it's sharing time with family or friends, whether it's a situation that we're working or whatever that is, God, I pray that you would just be with us and all that. I'm so very thankful for you and for your son. And I just pray that you'd shine in our lives. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.